Welcome to Beach Cop Detectives, a Terriers podcast, episode 10, Asunder. I'm Randy Lander with the TV Dudes, and with me today are Key and Clyde from the Pilot Watching Podcast. Glad to have you here, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, can't wait to get started. So, I always start this thing by asking how people got into Terriers, and more often than not, the answer is, you got me into Terriers, and I know that's the case in this case. <laughs> Absolutely. We met you at the podcast meetup at mm-hmm. the ATX TV Fest, and you told us that it was one of your favorite shows. And at that point, I was planning on doing this podcast, too. So yes. I was, I was spreading the gospel of Terriers all weekend that week. Absolutely. And then you guys went through and watched. And now, Key, before we record, you said you've been through this like four times now? <laughs> I've been through some of the episodes four times. Probably the whole thing tw- twice, maybe? I think, yeah, I think you've been through twice. Yeah. I've Clyde. been through the whole thing once. But yeah, I became a convert pretty quickly. Yeah, it's one of those... It, it got me with the pilot. I was I was right in there at, at first. And I think it just keeps getting better and better as it goes on. Absolutely. And then when I was talking about doing an episode, you guys picked this one. Yes. And I wondered if you wanted to t- talk about what this episode, what jumped out about here to make you pick this episode that you want to talk about. Well, I'll say that when we first started watching Terriers, I thought it was good. I think Keith thought it was kind of great. And so she started watching it. When your better half binges, sometimes you can fall back. But I think this was the episode for me that kind of reignited the fire. Like I, I think when we got into kind of this episode asunder i was just blown away by the depth of character mm-hmm. that i was watching and i was like well and it distracted me from the show being called terriers and me trying to figure out <laughs> scratch that 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 itch of why is it called terriers when it's <laughs> so not about dogs yeah that's something we've <laughs> talked about too is that the i think that the whole the notion was that they're sort of scrappy they're underdogs but yeah it's that's one of the reasons the podcast is called beach cop detectives that's actually something that ted griffin threw out when he was doing a panel at atx fest was if we called it beach cop detectives it might still be on yeah for sure i agree <laughs> so this episode asunder is directed by ted griffin it's the first one he directed and Maybe if the if IMDb is right, which is never a safe bet, the first thing he ever directed. And I thought the direction on this was really good. And it's written, in addition to having the staff writers of uh, Leslie Headland and John Worley, by Nicholas Griffin, who is Ted's brother. And they co-wrote the movie Matchstick Men together, which is on my to-watch list. I haven't gotten around to it yet. But I'm, I'm a big fan of Ocean's Eleven, so I kind of want to see his other big film. And it's interesting. This, to me, is sort of where Terrier starts to get a little dark. They've stepped away for a couple episodes from the Montague group and all that kind of thing. And for all we knew, that that story was over. And at this point, it all just comes roaring back. And suddenly, they're way in over their heads. And Gretchen's getting married. And, and Britt and Katie are breaking up. And it just looks – everything looks really bad. And it reminds me, one of the references that Griffin said was sort of the touchstone for this was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which just like this starts off kind of lighter. And then by the end, it gets a little dark. But it maintains its fun because of the great dialogue and the tight plotting and the chemistry, the leads and that kind of thing. And I think that's sort of going on in Terrors as well. And we've been, as we go through this, we generally talk as if people are going through the first time. So we'll avoid the spoilers for for 11 through 13. But at the end of this episode, we'll talk a little about what is going to happen after all of this. I wonder what you guys thought as far as, did you think it was a tone change here? Do you think it was sort of a slow slide or, or was it pretty much the same tone? 
It felt a little bit different. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. I just think it's very interesting that it starts off where Hank is down in the dumps and Britt is on top of the world. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, Hank's not as bad as he was in the beginning of the episode and Britt is crushed. Right, yeah. I think that the tone was... Th- there was something markedly different about this episode for me. And it starts at the very beginning. Like, I love the opening scene. Mm-hmm. Kind of when they... you. This is KXOB Ocean Beach. It's Saturday, and you're listening to Sarah Vaughn. Like, you know, you hear the radio, mm-hmm. and Hank is up on this ladder. And, and I didn't think anything of it at first, right? He's kind of cleaning out the gutters. And then I realized there is this man who's cleaning out the gutters with one hand. Mm-hmm. And look, I, I've, I've heard a collarbone. Like, I know what it's like to have your arm in a sling. That's a painful move. And and I'm thinking, he doesn't really strike me as the guy who would clean out the gutters on any day. And so from the very first scene, I'm already looking and going, this is going to be something different. Like I said, it woke me up and I'm like, what's going to happen next? Yeah. And you're wondering what's going on and why is he doing this? And mm-hmm. the song, It Never Entered My Mind by Sarah Vaughn that they open with is really great background music, which is not uncommon. This show's really good at its use of music, I think. I love the opening as Hank is cleaning out the gutter. I really saw it as a metaphor as he's grabbing these old withering leaves and throwing them off of the house. It's a nice contrast to Gretchen and what the tradition of throwing rice at a wedding. I mean, Hank has these dead, dead dying leaves. It's just a very interesting contrast to the life that... At- Gretchen's going to about to move into. We're seeing the end versus the renewal. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, we see that wedding invitation in the trash, which is both metaphorical for sort of the trash relationship that he has with Gretchen and also very, very practical says, hey, this is what Hank's not doing because of what happened last episode that he, he was uninvited. Then we see him back at Carter's diner, which is his sort of comfort zone place. And we see that Carter's tired of him, that he's been taking advantage of bottomless coffee all day. Uh, he's reading the home section. Yes. Of the newspaper. For the second time. <laughs> And, and when Britt drops in, I thought that Michael Raymond James really played the concern that he had for Hank really well. He sort of underplayed, played a little subtle, but you can see that that conversation about, you know, what are you going to do, that kind of thing, is very much about, please don't drink today. Right, absolutely. And so the next thing we see is Hank up at AA, and he's talking about keeping himself busy. He mentions he has 400, 543 days of sobriety. So this is not a casual thing, and he's talking about how this is like the hardest day of his life. So this morning I, uh, I cleaned the gutters out on my roof. I mopped the floors of my house, swept the garage, windexed the windows inside and out, and uh, polished the three pieces of silver I own. I did anything to distract myself because today my ex-wife's getting married to a new guy. And I still love her something fierce. But that ship sailed. I know that. <laughs> it's kind of funny because um, her wedding is, uh, is starting just any minute now. But I had this other thought <laughs> that was, um, what better way to distract myself than to fall off the wagon? You know? <laughs> I have 543 days of sobriety, and it's been good, but I have to say that today has been the toughest one yet. No lie. But I figure if I can get through today, you know, I can pretty much get through anything. Thanks. So Hank gives us this speech about, and I always love when Hank talks at AA, because it's more revealing. Hank is so 
closed off in some ways. Like we don't see him be honest with anyone for the most part. I think when he talks to Brit, when he talks to Gustafson, there's always this sort of jokey exterior that hides any true feelings he's got. The closest we get to really seeing Hank is when he's talking to his sister or sometimes when he's talking to Gretchen. And when he talks to AA, I think we're seeing sort of the unvarnished Hank to some extent. And so I liked that. And from there, we cut over to the wedding. And we're on to the second part of the story, which is what's going on with Brit and Katie. It's tipped off very early because Katie is drinking water. And Brit notices just immediately what's going on there. Well, I mean, he'd have to in all the other episodes. They're constantly drinking, yeah. right? Like it's... I mean, they're, they're drinking, they're taking shots. It's a, it's a party with Brit and Katie. Right. And then they get there and he immediately is like, give me a glass of red, like bring it. And she's like, water. And was, it, I mean, it would have been shocking to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel in character. I did like the way she kind of played it off though. It was like, oh, it's bad luck to uh, drink wine before the wedding. Well, he probably notices it even more just because of his relationship with Hank. Knowing that Hank is, you know, an alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. So he's probably just uber aware of someone right. not drinking or drinking. Right. Yeah. That Hank probably has, has drank, taken water when, when Brett's having a beer or whatever before. So it would just jump out at him. Right. But there's another one of these things. And this one of the things I like about terrors is as I'm going through and watching again, I remember how well constructed the story is. Little things that put other things in motion. The guy bumping into Brit and spilling wine all over him. I was like, oh, that's just a little bit. And then I forgot, oh, that's how they get Hank to the hotel. And little things like that where there's like a, oh, that could happen. It's not super contrived, but it does move the plot to where you need it to be. And so when Hank shows up and Britt talks about Katie acting funny, there's this great moment between them because Hank knows exactly what's going on, but he can't let on. And I think, again, we see how good Hank is at lying to Britt because he's talking about never play detective in your private life. I love that line. Me too. It's so good. And they do a little callback to one of the one of the gags from the first episode was they kept doing the in trouble and they do the little belly mime. And he does the thing. He says, uh, if she was like that, and does the little belly motion. And I don't know if that was actually a callback or not, but I, it, it jumped out at me. Hank is still in the hotel and he goes over to the bar and it just looks like things are not going to go well. We see him watching the, the wedding. And I thought that shot was really good where he's watching from behind class and then we cut to the outside and we get this big open shot of everyone having a good time. And it's such a great visitor representation of him being on the outside of, of everything that's going on. Yeah, it was real and, and rang very true. Because when you're hurting, you know, especially when, when you, you know, someone you love and you've lost them, mm-hmm. you do things that are torturous, right? So there he is, the last place he should be. Mm-hmm. He's at the wedding of the ex-wife that he loves and he's watching it. Yeah. Like he, he's close enough to hear the happiness mm-hmm. and it's just torturing him. And you know that that's a trigger. And, you know, so of course he kind of goes into the bar, right? Right. Well, Hank's got a real self-destructive streak, uh, a self-destructive streak that usually hits others with collateral damage. And so there's a question of whether or not he's sort of testing himself and, and trying to push himself into this place. What his, his current addiction, what he gets, the way he gets around drinking is a case. We've seen it before, and we'll see it very much in this episode, that the thing that stops him from drinking, from going back to where he was, is a case that gets his mind engaged on a different level. And so it's sort of kismet that he sees, while he's in the restroom, Zeitland and Burke come in. And there's a great menace there, but at the same time, it's almost a relief because now he's back on a case. He has something to occupy his mind. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Zeitland and Burke, who, are, who I just think are great villains, is I love the two of them. They have this sort of oily casualness about 
what they're going to do to people. And the conversation between the two of them about what's going to happen, we don't even know who Laura Ross is at this point, but it's clear that somebody's coming in and something's going to happen. You're in the ambassador suite. They're cleaning it now. I imagine she'll have her guard up. I'll talk to her. Hopefully reason will prevail. And if it doesn't? I don't want to do the math on that particular equation just yet. I have people standing by. I love what you say about that oily casualness because they're not this super villain with the the deep kind of mysterious laugh, the ha ha ha, let me tell you my plan. But instead, it's this it's it's quiet and it's bone-chillingly sinister. Yeah. With with very little dialogue. There's little twinges. Burke when he is talking about hurting someone, he almost always gets this little upturned curl on his lip. Like there's this little smile. Like you can tell this is a guy who enjoys the sort of sadistic things he's he's asked to do. This is not a guy who's just doing his job. He likes threatening people, causing people pain. We're going to see that later when he sort of steps up to Laura Ross, who we finally meet. Terrius has a history of introducing things in the last five minutes of the episode. Like that's a common thing. You're like, you're watching the time and you're like, wait a minute, we're five minutes from the end. We should be at the denouement and there's a new twist coming. And this is sort of the meta version of this where they're introducing somebody in the last third of the season. Laura Ross comes in on episode 10, and she's such a major part of the, the show. And I love the actress who, who plays her, Allison Elliott. And yeah, she's she's really good. And she plays the same sort of laid-back cool. She fits with what Hank does, I think. Laid-back, sarcastic vibe. And she's not a first, she doesn't back down to Zeitlin. But we, find, we see her, and she's going into this meeting. So Hank gets a room, a master suite, because he overheard Brooke and Zeitlin talking about it. Ask for something close because he knows it's not available. Again, really good. Hank is good with detective work. He's smart. He, yeah. He always gets, he always has little tricks. And he calls up his, uh, his buddies, the, we were, I was saying the RV tech guys, but you were saying. I called them the tech squad. I couldn't come up with something sexier yeah, than that. I, see, I, and I always thought Lone Gunman from X-Files, which I don't know if you guys have watched a whole lot of X-Files, but. I, I haven't. Have you? It's been a while. The lone gunmen were his three sort of conspiracy buddies who would always show up. And I thought maybe it was an homage. It was not because I, I talked to Sean Ryan and where these guys come from, their names are Blodgett, Gunt, and Swift, by the way, which is fantastic. Played by Alec Berg, uh, not that Alec Berg, not the one from Seinfeld and all that, but an actor, Todd Faison and Alex Fernie. And they were a comedy trio and still are a comedy trio named Convoy. And they perform at the UCB in LA. Oh, that's great. I and, love that. Yeah. And, and Ted Griffin saw them and was like, let's get a part for these guys. And once you know that, it sort of makes a lot of sense that these guys were stand-up comedians who work together because they've got that chemistry. Yeah, they play off each other really, really well. Like even – and not just the dialogue, but when you watch the scene, particularly with them in the hotel, and they're setting up, they just move. It's almost as though – it's it's choreographed mm-hmm. and you know we if if you watch a lot of kind of like action shows then you know that the stunts are all kind of choreographed but this is just people walking in a room carrying equipment and then putting it down but the way they move it's kind of like you know that they've done that with each other before yeah it's like if you've ever unpacked like music equipment 
and you've done it a bunch of times, you just kind of know. You're like, hey, over here, you don't have to talk a lot. You just move things in, in unison. And that's what I saw when I watched them. Yeah, I totally agree. And they also, they're so casual about what they're doing. They're like, who are we bugging? Do you care? No. Nope. <laughs> and then says, we'll be up and running in five minutes. Like, that's it. That's all. They're just, it's, it's a fun thing to do. And also, the RV. When they pull that RV up to the ambassador suite, the ambassador hotel. I mean, that was a great scene because it, yeah. it comes in and I, like everyone else in the scene, is thinking, what is this? Who's going to pop out of this? But they roll in like they're rock stars. They yeah. do. And he tosses the keys to the valet and says, you know, put keep it up front. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he just pulled in in a Maserati or something. It so was confident. Yeah. It's great. What it recalls to me, and this is a weird reference I know, is... A lot of scenes in Beverly Hills Cop and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yes. When he rolls up to the, to the Beverly Ambassador in his beat up car and they, the guy looks at the car and he's like, yeah, all this, all this happened last time I was here. <laughs> That's a good callback. So do you think there could be a potential spinoff? These guys. I would love to see more that of would, these guys. That would be great. Yeah. Ooh, in a, a 30 minute comedy format. So yeah. maybe not, maybe not the hour long drama. But a comedy format. Yeah, I would. I would definitely watch that. I'm curious to see these guys in performance now. I'm sure there's some stuff on YouTube. But oh, yeah, I mean, I would love to see them in something else. Like it would be great if if uh, Sean Ryan or Ted Griffin does something else. Mm-hmm. If they bring these guys back as their characters, that yeah. I'd love to see that. Super fun. That sounds that would super be very fun. Very cool. While these guys give him give him the bug options, this is another great bit. Another another one of these performance bits. They're figuring out what the best one is, and the best one's one that has to get in the room. And it'll give them video and sound. And they're like, which one he looks more like a waiter? And they all point to the same guy, <laughs> including the guy he points to himself. Yeah, it's such a great bit. It is. I love the fact that they were kind of unsure about how to do it mm-hmm. and Hank immediately know, knew. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I say this on our show all the time is that when I watch something, I love competence. Like, I love watching shows where someone's good at what they do. And I think that's the one thing about Terriers that kind of drew me in mm-hmm. is that you don't see it. Like, you know, Hank's got so much turmoil in his life. Right. You You don't really expect it. But then you get in and he's really good at being a detective. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy because he's the guy. He, they're unlicensed. He got thrown off the force. You would expect him to be, and he's, he was a drunk. You expect him to be sort of a stumble bum, somebody who gets by on just like luck. But no, he's good at this job. He's quick witted and he's very perceptive. Yeah, and you mentioned that he was kind of like Laura, and I think one of the things that they both have in common is you don't know when they're scared. Right. Right. Like in the moment, I mean, she's in this place where, like you said, these guys, they enjoy this. Yeah. And I absolutely believe they're going to hurt her. Oh, right? sure. Yeah. And he's been in the same situation, same guys, mm-hmm. you know, and in both situations, he's just there like, okay. She yeah. handles it really well. You yeah. would think that she's in this situation regularly where she's being threatened. threatened by bad guys and that she's so used to this. So I, I thought that was a great. Character part for her. One of the things I I like about the partnership between Britt and Hank is the two of them improvise well together. Hank will throw something out and Britt goes right for it. Episode two, where Hank throws out, you know, we're the enforcers, and then Britt just starts breaking stuff. Or the one in episode one where Hank says, We have a minimum retainer of $5,000, minimum two days. Like, Britt will jump right in. And I think one of the things that gave that instant chemistry between Laura Ross and Hank for me is that. She does the same thing. She's able to jump in when he's basically texting her. She doesn't have any idea who she who he is, but he's giving her good information. 
Absolutely. And not to give away any spoilers, but we definitely do see it later on. Yeah. Where they all work together really well. It's like they've been in trio for much longer than they have been. So yeah, she fits fun. right in. She does. And she gets out when, when she goes out on the, on the deck, says she needs some time to think. And Hank whispers down to her and she just yells out, don't hurt my mom. Don't go to and gives us, gives her address. That's, that's great improvisation. And she gets the info to Hank while not looking totally weird to Zeitlin and Burke. I, I did have a question about that. Why didn't they pick up a little bit more on, on, on the address part? I think because they, well, they did mention later when she's like getting out, uh, Zeitlin is yelling at Burke about, I thought you swept this place. So they thought, they thought they swept the place for bugs and they had no reason to believe that someone was up above and, and the balcony above. So the, I think it was overconfidence. Ah. It's a reasonable point. I, I do. It didn't jump out as weird though, because I think they thought, oh, she's rattled. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think for me, I kind of went with it because that's how they gave it to her, right? Like we know your mother's at 55, 17, right? Yeah. Um, and so she kind of, there's no reason to go to 55, 17. I thought, you know, I, I kind of was like, ah, it seems a little odd. Yeah. But I'll, I'll kind of roll with it. But it's a callback to them saying it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a little stilted, but like I say, I think it's because they think she's scared. Right. That makes sense. And she's just acting a little weird. And, and there's a reason she should be scared because Zeitlin's speech, where he starts out sort of threatening enough, where he's sort of saying, but not saying like, we're going to ruin you, you know, we're going to find your contact, all that kind of thing, and ends with this threat of, we, you know, we'll give you time to remove the heroin from the trunk of your car. And there's this pause. And then he bursts into laughter like it's the best practical joke ever. And Hank is up there saying, he's not kidding. Yeah, I mean, I I, I looked at that and I was like, oh my goodness, this is a madman. Yeah. Like, she's done. I, like, I, I was like, she's done. They absolutely, yeah. they play a real California cool, but then yeah. they just throw things out there and you're like, oh, wow, I'm really dealing with professionals here. Credit to her, even when she's in the middle of being threatened. She's still throwing back at Zeitlin about what's going on, that Zeitlin's representing Terra Nuestra, which we first get mentioned here, and the Montague Group, which we know from callbacks to the first four or five episodes, and that basically the Montague Group is selling their supposedly toxic land for cheap to Terra Nuestra, and now we know, we the, we the viewer are aware that, oh, this is more than just the, this is a land deal, this is the, the end game for that thing we didn't really know about. Because last we saw... Steph had told him that lamb was fine, and Hank decided to let it go. And now we're finding out, oh, well, this is this is what was going on. And Laura has figured it out. And despite the fact she's in danger, she's still sort of laying out to Zeitlin, look, I still have you too. At that point, he decides he needs to double down on the threat, and he steps out for a minute so Burke can slide in and make just the most awful threats. Your mother, Eileen, she lives near here, alone. She suffers from diabetes and hypertension. In a few minutes, two people will park across from her home on Lambert Street. Within 30 seconds, they can be inside it. Hey, how do you turn up the volume on these things? He's threatening her. They will hold her down and insert a needle here beneath her fingernail. Within 15 seconds, she'll be in cardiac arrest. She'll be brain dead in two minutes. All we need is a name, Miss Ross. And just watching her face sort of fall a little bit as she loses that cool for just a second, because this guy is so methodical about telling her what he's going to do to her mother. 
And that she at that moment thinks there's really nothing she can do about it because it's before Hank has whispered to her and she's getting the texts, but he doesn't know, she doesn't know exactly what's going on. From there, we go back to the wedding. Katie and Britt are having their own little problems because Katie sort of picks a fight. Britt is, Britt is, you know, they've been banging on the wedding the whole time. And Katie sort of picks a fight with him because he calls her his girlfriend instead of fiance. And he's griping about the wedding and she's saying, well, we don't have to do any of this. And I feel like that was definitely Katie, like, just, she wasn't mad at him. She was mad at herself. I just thought it was so interesting how he kept on pointing out all these little details about the wedding that Mm -hmm. people really take for granted. They don't really think about that you pull petals off of a rose and then you stuff on them and that how many pieces of paper are going to say where you need to sit and where you need to be. And so I just thought it was interesting social commentary that people don't really address when it comes to, you know, all the money that goes into a typical wedding. Yeah. I mean, even though she picks a fight, she says some things and I don't know that she was wrong, right? Right. Like she, she says, you know, you're not ready for this. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking as, as I'm watching him criticize everything, I'm trying to figure out, is he concerned about the cost or is he really picking at the act of the, the wedding itself? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm, I was trying to figure out. Like maybe he's not ready. Maybe, maybe this was an idea but he's looking at this and like well i don't want to do that and i don't want to do that and he i don't want to do he that he didn't seem angry to me though and no, i thought it was still angry. pretty lighthearted and actually kind of funny all the things that he was pointing out yeah, yeah. especially and- the chicken that tastes like fish <laughs> yes like, it's disgusting but i also love when he when he points out the rose petals he's talking to hank about it later too and he's like do you know they do this because to him it's just like well, they've ruined a bunch of perfectly good flowers for no reason right and that almost goes back to the one of the major themes of terriers which is the sort of the rich versus the poor and the notion of like doing this with a bunch of flowers just is outside his experience completely. So why would you do that? Those are expensive and who needs a bunch of flower petals on the ground? That sort of speaks to, to who Brit is. And I, I don't know if he's against marriage in general, but I think that he was like, this doesn't make any sense. He's definitely against waste. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, for me, it was, I thought the petals were cool, but it was the, <laughs> the cards so or like the seating. Yeah. And he was like, wow. They, so they had separate, cards of where to sit and then it was oh look more cards (laughs) telling us where to sit and what to do when we get there yeah cards tell us where to go and cards that tell us we're there yeah Yeah. she starts feeling sick in the middle of talking to gretchen and runs the bathroom and jig is up like brit's not the head detective that hank is but he's not stupid no and so tells her she's pregnant wants to know why she's acting mad at him wants to know why she lied to him and at that point, and this, despite the fact that I've watched this show numerous times, it always surprises me and, and kicks me in the gut when she whispers to him, because there's no doubt, even the first time through, that she is telling him the truth just in the way he reacts. It was one of my favorite parts. It's so well done. His, his, I mean, his acting ability to just express that through his face was just remarkably well done, and I, I love that moment. And I love the choice to do the whisper. Yes, mm-hmm. because. I mean, we, we, the viewer, already know exactly what's going on, right? And so, one, I feel like you don't belittle us, right, uh, to recap, but also from a writing standpoint, can you, is there any, you, you can't write that perfectly, right? The whisper is perfect. It's intimate, too, and yeah. so it's a moment between them. You feel that moment that it's between them and, you know, it's going to destroy their lives, but it's personal. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good point is that we, we don't have to, they don't have to write the dialogue. Yeah. We can all, we can imagine it being 
the worst thing that he's ever heard and the way she's telling it. And yeah, you're right. Having her say, I slept with my professor or I slept with someone else or whatever she told him would not carry the weight of that whisper and so that true. face falling. But then we get to, I thought even more heartbreaking was Britt and Katie talking about it. Britt's just falling apart. Katie's crying. He wants to know who it was and she won't tell him. I can't even really barely remember anything about it except I just woke up wanting to take it all back. I mean, Britt, I wish so much that... You can't take it back, Katie. Uh, you can't undo this. Who was it? Who was it? Who was it? Who was it? It doesn't matter. Bullshit! I'll tell you it doesn't matter. It matters. Who was it? Nobody. It's not like I like him. It just happened. What the hell does that mean? It just happened. Did you pick him up? Is this somebody you know? Is Why are you protecting him? protecting you i don't need your protection i mean it was it was brutal but not in this soap opera kind of voyeuristic way no like it was it 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 just felt right in in the tone it was accessible yeah it, it really does feel like I mean, I've I've never witnessed this particular fight. I've been lucky enough not to have that fight with a significant other. Amen. <laughs> but it felt really real. He starts sort of in on her a little bit, and she is angry and mad, and mad at herself and upset. And she goes in on him. One of the most truthful things she's probably ever said to him about how he's not ready. Basically, he's just cutting the thing that Britt you know, Brit worries about this. He Britt worries about being immature. He worries about not being good enough for her. For her to basically say to him, yes, I think that too. Sometimes I think you're not good enough for me. Sometimes I think you're not ready for this. That was just the most brutal, just gut punch upon gut punch. And then Britt responds by throwing her keys at her, tells her that he'll get his shit and he wants her to be gone and that he doesn't ever want to see her again. And the, the, the choreography of that too, with the two of them so close together, it's so intimate and so real. But at the same time, they're, they're having a big blowout fight, but it's not in that, like you say, soap opera way. It's, it's real and it's, and it's close. What I love about that scene also is uh, the placement. It's happening right where the wedding took place, right outside where the, the guests sat. And so it's just it's a great contrast. Well, and yeah, it goes to the title of the show, which is Asunder, which, of course, is a reference to what uh, we have joined here today, Let No Man Tear Asunder, let, let no man tear asunder which is part of the wedding vows. And we're seeing as Gretchen and Jason come together, we're watching them be torn asunder at the other end of the hotel. They jump back to the hackers rescuing Mrs. Ross, which is, again, a really funny scene. And I thought this was interesting that in the world of Terriers, all older women stand outside using a garden hose all day. <laughs> because the neighbor, both neighbors at Hank's, that was their their uh, shortcut. The visual shortcut is that they're out there watering their garden. And we see Mrs. Ross, she's out there watering her garden. Maybe it's a San Diego thing. It may be. <laughs> That's great. I, I mean, I, I love that scene when they were kind of talking about, you know, she said, this kind of feels like I'm being ca- kidnapped. She's like, we'd be the worst kidnappers ever. <laughs> When they when they go and show up and they knock on the door and they're like, we're friends from work. It's got that whole like, leave it to Beaver, Eddie Haskell, like, hey, Mrs. Ross, we're friends with the Beaver. Come with <laughs> us. Now that we know that Mrs. Ross is safe, we jump back to Laura Ross still being threatened and she gives a name to the guys. And I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you can cast your mind back to when you first saw it. Did you think he, she had maybe given up her source at that point? No. no. Me neither. We knew. And yeah. it's almost surprising that, that Zeitland and, and, and Burke would, but they do check. Like, they check to make sure it's a person at their place, and they so they, they decide, okay, she's given us a real name. 
and Hank bails her out by calling in hotel security. That was that was the best use of hotel security I've ever seen. It was. I mean, I, I didn't think for one second that was her source. She has been too cool yeah. and too collected to this point. What I did think was, man, what a poor schmo. Like... <laughs> I would be terrible. I mean, because they say, you know, we're right? going to send somebody. I'm like, man, imagine me doing my job. I don't even know this woman. <laughs> and these guys show up trying to kill me. Right. It's just like some random guy off the street. He has nothing to do with anybody. But because you know his name, you're going to get him picked up by these by these gangsters. But luckily enough, Hank is a good enough detective that he was going to handle that, right? Didn't he make no, a phone call? She she asked him about who it was. And it's a guy who's been in the Bahamas for a month. Yeah. All oh, right, right. Yep. So right. she gave up a dude who was, and which I appreciate the fact that <laughs> he was on vacation yeah. while all this stuff was going on. Yeah. Cause, but uh, yeah, if, if, if they're not good at their job, that poor guy comes back a month from now. Right. <laughs> bad shape. I mean, you come back from vacation. It's one thing to expect all these emails, right? But <laughs> not somebody looking to kind of. You know, hit you with the the heroin needle under the right. fingernails. Which is Burke's favorite thing, apparently. Right. The use of hotel security to get her out of there was really slick. And I love that she's so quick to pick up on it and walk out the door and hang just- but, And still very calm, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she's smiling and says, yeah. well, thanks. I've got everything I need. Yeah, her her composure is, is definitely really, really good. And then Hank slides up behind her and is just says, keep walking. They're, they're on to us. And she doesn't do the, you know, who the hell are you? She just asks. She's like, what's going on? She's, again, really good at sort of picking up on his improv. I thought it was very telling that as he gets her into the car, he sneaks her into the the wedding limo, which is just a nice mixture of both plots combining. She thanks him. And he tells her, don't. I wouldn't have gotten through this without you. And what he means to me is... This distracted me from the wedding. This distracted me from drinking. This whole thing, all this, I'm sorry that you were in danger, but getting you out of it is what saved me from drinking today. See, and I love the fact that he didn't drink. Yeah. I think it would have been so easy. I mean, part of me expected him to drink. Mm -hmm. I would have understood, right? Like, who wouldn't have understood if, if this was the day that Hank had a drink? Yeah. Right? But he didn't. Again... I look at Hank and and I just think, wow, like I like him. Like I mean, he it just made me like him even more. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I thought that was a great choice. It made me respect him even more because it made me realize that his decision is for himself, not to drink. It wasn't for Gretchen. Right. It's not for Brett. Right. It's for himself. Yeah. That's commendable. Yeah, I the agree. He- and then Hank, uh, because despite not drinking, he's still self destructive, walks right up to Zeitlin and Burke. He doesn't yeah. just leave. He goes up and confronts them. Much as I find Zeitlin to be just this, you know, this horrific villain, he's a he's a dangerous guy. He is likable and charming in his way. He starts talking to to Hank, and he's not threatened by it. Mr. Zeitlin, Mr. Dolworth. Well, this is a surprise. Last time we met, as I recall, you almost gave Mr. Barker a deviated septum. There's a name for guys who punch and run. Independent contractor. There's a name for guys like you, too, but I promised Father Michael I wouldn't use that word. Hmm. What are you doing here? Surveillance work. <sighs> My ex-wife used to make that face all the time. And it's just, there's, there's uh, these, these guys, whether it's with Britt, or, Britt and Hank, Hank and, Ro- Hank and Laura Ross, anybody... The the snappy patter of the show is such a is such a selling point of it for me. Yeah, it's got a great tempo. I mean, I don't know. I, I am slightly taken aback by characters 
who do the "I'm coming for you." Like I'm thinking, just keep that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, don't don't tell him. Just just be easy. Keep yeah. that to yourself and let it be a surprise. Yeah, most but, of those people don't have anything to. I mean, they have something to lose, but Hank really doesn't have anything left. That's true. That they can this take from true. him. And I think that's what it is. It's that Hank doesn't think he has anything to lose. And I mean, his sister's in a home. His wife just got married to somebody else. We'll find out later. And we'll talk about this in the spoiler section. That he does still have things to lose. But that self-destructive streak, that pride and that feeling that what are you going to do to me is what gets him to go and do the confrontation, which absolutely he shouldn't do. Right. Like, you're right. He should be, he should go get in that limo with her and go somewhere. And then at the end, be like, surprise, yeah. I got you. You didn't see me coming. But instead, he, you know, he wants everybody to know. Instead, when Zeitlin asks him, what are you doing here? Hank says, surveillance work. Zeitlin's face just falls because he knows exactly what just happened. He knows that Hank just messed up everything. And then Hank does what he always does, which is a bluff of that disc. And again, I'll ask, when you guys were watching this, did you think there was any on that disc? I did not. I did. Really? I did just because he had, you know, the tech, had, squad, yeah. the tech squad there. I thought, why, why wouldn't he have recorded it? Why didn't he really have something there? But they must not have gotten it up and running yeah. in that time. But so when we see him with Britt the next time, he just tosses into the woods, and Britt's like, "What's that bluff?" It's such what they do. They they will always bluff or cheat their way through. They've been doing it since episode one. And then it makes sense why he would confront Zeitlin like that, though, just to see yeah. what he would do, just to get a little bit more info, just That's to get true. him to mess up a little bit more. Yeah, that makes sense. That he's he's actually. He's getting something out of the confrontation. It's not just pride that he has actually working a case. Yes. Because, yeah, once once he's on this, he's on the case again. Mm-hmm. He's not going to let this Montague thing drop again. And after an episode where, for the most part, we've seen Hank and Britt separate, which is sort of a mirror of the previous episode where Britt was doing a lot of the work because Hank was down with his injury. Mm-hmm. This episode, Britt is sort of off to the side getting his heart broken, and Hank is doing a lot of the, the work on the case. The very end, we see them come together. Hank has his nose bloodied. He got hit real hard by Burke, and Britt is sitting on the curb, and he may not be physically damaged, but his you know, his ties all loosened, and he's been emotionally beat up at a level that is is maybe worse than what Hank's had. And they are walking toward the camera, walking toward the sunset, and they both look like the beaten. It's such a noir trope. They're the guys. They've been beat up. They've been hit, and now they're ready to hit back. And there's this great line between the two of them. What's that? Bluff. Brother, we got ourselves a case. Silence planning on buying up half this town. We might be the only two sons of bitches who know anything about it. Your place or mine? I had a drink. More than ever in my life. I don't. I don't usually put the dialogue this late into the run. I guess I'm picking up habits from Terriers that at the end of the episode, I'm starting something new, but that dialogue is so good. It is. And that's one of the things I really love about, about Terriers is that typically if you have a show that's called Beach Cop Detectives and it's a, a detective show, very rarely is the dialogue that good. Like that's not what the show is about. It is about figuring out the mystery. It's about the action, you know, the car chase, the, you know, trying to apprehend the suspect Mm -hmm. but this is about this great dialogue between characters and i know key likes it because it's a bromance between (laughs) Britt and hank but i I think it's i think it's great i think dialogue's wonderful definitely it's definitely a buddy show but that was the the dialogue i have to agree with you that was one of the things that kept me going the whole time because it's so smart Mm -hmm. and it's quick-witted and it's sarcastic and i love good sarcasm sarcasm. (laughs) yeah the the way that they'll throw things back at each other when they ask it someone asks a question there's never a straight answer back it's always a joke no 
You're right. And right. even even when they're at their darkest, like right now, they're still sort of making jokes at one another a little bit. Yeah. It has a rhythm. It's almost like a like a, a dance. Like we we've talked about the choreography, but the way the dialogue is written mm-hmm. is is very much in in kind of rhythm. And it's it's like Britt will say something, and then Hank's right there, or Hank will say something, you know, and then you know Britt's right back at him. I mean, it, it's it just moves. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler warning for those who have not watched all of Terriers yet. Don't listen to this segment of the podcast until you have watched episodes 11 through 13. All right. Spoiler warning given. So from here on out, things get pretty dark. Yeah. Britt's going to get in some legal trouble because Katie mentioned to him, she's like, I'm protecting you. And I don't know if she knew exactly what was going to happen. But she was right that Britt was going to go off half-cocked and beat some poor guy half to death who didn't even do anything. Right. And so that's going to be going with Britt. And then we've got the conspiracy lining up. And as I watch this episode for the second, third time, I'm watching Gretchen and Jason get married. And it's heartbreaking because we know what's going to happen to Jason. And we know it's Hank's fault. Like Hank's the one who gets him involved in this. And because Jason's basically a decent guy, he's going to get killed. And it's so heartbreaking to watch. They, they get like a week of happiness. There's so little time together. Yeah, I mean, it, it does get dark. And I think that's also uh, something that's interesting about the show is that I don't know that you could have predicted it. And I know I kept rooting for Brit not to go to jail. Yeah. Like up until the very end, I yeah. kept looking for, well, Hank's going to get him out. Or somebody's going to get him out. Maybe you know, Gustav right. is going to get him out. But something's going to happen. Yeah. And he's gonna, it's going to be okay. And it, we just never really got there. We don't, we don't know where he went. We don't know. But, <laughs> oh, but you know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> legally out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought he was going to, you know, get the case dismissed or something. And yeah. And, and I was completely surprised yeah. that Jason was going to be killed. Yeah. You know, well, they'll, they'll, yeah. Yeah, they'll go to places like they'll, there was definitely not the sense that that's where the arc was going. Like Jason seemed like a nice side character who was there to cause Hank some emotional pain. We didn't know he was going to become directly involved in the case. The, the guy that Katie slept with and the guy that Katie almost slept with, there was no indication that, that guy was going to be anything but a, a near miss or something to cause the relationship to break up, not something that's going to push Britt and do something, something he can't take back that is a hundred percent in the wrong. Like, the reason Britt needs to go to jail is Britt did something very criminal, like worse than he did when he got arrested before. Like he wasn't just breaking into houses. He beat a guy really badly. And while I love Britt, I was like, I know he's in an emotional state. I'm like, you know what? He probably does deserve to go to jail for this. Well, yeah. I mean, and I also thought, well, maybe Katie's going to be like, Hey, you know, I know it was bad, but can you drop the charges or something? Didn't happen. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's kind of like, well, if anybody out there is watching this and is thinking, well, I'll just go beat the guy up. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> Educational <don't> moment. <laughs> I respected Katie so much for that, not asking mm-hmm. her classmate to drop the charges. Yeah. Before we get to all of that next episode, and we'll talk about this when I get to the next episode, but we're going to get that flashback to what got Hank kicked off the force, what ruined his marriage. And that is also a really dark, but Really interesting story of Hank and how good he is as a detective, even when he was drinking. It was such an unexpected moment. That entire, that I mean, that storyline was so unexpected. 
Yeah. Really well done. Well, especially at this point where it seems like, oh, we're in for the end game. Exactly. Up and they take a they take an episode out to show us a really crucial thing about his past. But it was it's it's obviously critical because yeah. we're thinking the whole time, well, why isn't he on the force yeah. anymore? You know, I for one usually and, and I'm, this is a strong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. I usually hate episodes that take us away from the main arc. Mm -hmm. Like they feel like, oh, it's the holidays and we'll just toss this episode in here and then we'll get back to what's really going on when we get back from break. Let's do a flashback show. And I hate, hate, I hate flashback shows (laughs) and I hate clip shows. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying. So, you know, if you have a clip flashback show in your pilot which would be hard you don't <laughs> want me to watch it but but i think the thing that was again different here was that this was something that even though it seemed out of place it was kind of like just hold on to it because it's gonna make sense it's going to fill in pieces that you don't have as we kind of go into the, the last few episodes and so actually i thought it was like i thought it was well done and it really explains the dynamic between gretchen and hank because mm-hmm. before that mm-hmm. we get some of it but we don't understand why he still loves her or of course we understand why he loves her but what he has lost and why he's lost it and how that's just all intertwined and then of course with losing jason later on she tells him at this point you break everything you touch yeah and so for her to later on be the most understanding person in the whole after jason dies i just thought that was remarkable yeah well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for thanks for talking about this episode with me. Where can people find you? You can find us at pilotwatching.com, on Twitter at pilotwatching, and on Facebook at TV with Key and Clyde. So this episode, we've got a relationship destroyed, big danger with ugly head again. But hey, at least Hank doesn't need a drink. Yep. And we got fun. Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tyann. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Paul Tyann. Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.